You know people are, they have some joy when I heard about three or four cheers for the announcements today. (laughs) Stands up taking the kids at Hume Lake, but I'll make sure to message him. I'll tell him, man, your announcements, they killed it, man. People were clapping at the end of the announcements, man. All right, we are... Pretty much at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we'll have one more week, which will kind of serve as almost like an epilogue, the last four verses. But today is really um, the high point, the apex of the story, in that uh, what takes place today is everything that Matthew has been leading up to. And like we've done every week for the past probably four or five weeks, we've gone back to Genesis before we've gone to the actual text in Matthew. And if you've been here, there's a very important reason for that, namely that... The gospel writers, Matthew and the first Christians, all saw the life of Jesus as the climax to the large story that's been taking place since the very beginning. So if you're going to understand what's taking place at the end of the gospel accounts, you have to understand the plot points and the narrative structure that's established in the first few pages of the Bible. So today is no different. We're going to go review some Genesis, go to some new territory, and then get caught up to where we left off from last week. So a little bit of review that I'm hoping many of you have like memorized by now. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. God creates the world and the kind of climactic conclusion to that creation is the creation of human beings. And God creates the first man. And man in Hebrew is Adam. And so the first man, Adam, is named Adam. The man is named man. And this Adam, who is named Adam, is taken from the Adama, which is the ground. And the words are related. So he's like man from the ground named man. That's, the, that, that's kind of the, the inner logic of it. And everything is great. Adam is created. Eve is created. They're living in the garden. And God gives them a rule. They are to live in the garden, but also this. The Lord God c- commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat it, you shall surely die. There's a very important kind of logic here. The reason why there is death is because there is rebellion or disobedience or sin. So death is intricately bound up with human rebellion, with sin. They are connected. Now, after God gives this command, we don't know how long, but eventually this mysterious serpent figure enters into our story and he tempts the first human beings and they disobey and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God shows up and he pronounces judgment, judgment upon the serpent, the man, and the woman. To the serpent, he says this, which is, which is judgment, but also this glimmer of hope for humanity. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there's going to be enmity, strife, a war between the serpent and his offspring or his people and this mysterious figure, the offspring of the woman. And ultimately, the offspring, the son of this woman, is going to bruise the head of this mysterious serpent figure. And all the while, he shall be bruised on his heel. God's judgment towards the man is this, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, for the past three weeks, we've talked about this verse, which means we started off on this wonderful note every single week that says this. 
Humans are called Adam, and the first Adam was named Adam. He was taken from the ground, but because of sin, the Adama, the ground, is cursed, and now this Adam will spend his whole entire life working very hard, sweating from his brow, and then he gets to die and go back into the ground from, where he, from wh- which he came. You know, you're an Adam, made from the Adama, go live your life, work the ground your entire life, and then you die and go back to the ground. So we've started off every Sunday morning on this great note. note. It's been very encouraging. It's kind of set up to counterbalance the amazing announcements that were so warmly received. So, so follow this. This is incredibly important now at this point. There is this inner logic of how the three great enemies of humanity work. There are three great enemies, and they're all intricately bound up together. They're like a braid. There is death, which is the great enemy of humanity. But death entered the equation because of sin. And sin first entered because this mysterious serpent figure tempted the first humans, the first Adams, to sin. And so it's this like three-headed dragon. They're separate, distinct things, Satan, sin, and death. Nevertheless, they're all kind of intricately bound up together like a three-headed dragon or like an evil trident that constantly and continually strikes at humanity. And there's a pattern that's established here, an incredibly important pattern. It's this. Satan tempts, man sins, man dies. Satan wins. So you see how they're, they're all tied together. There's the tempter, Satan sins, man uh, tempts, man sins, and then he dies, and Satan wins. Now, depending on kind of where you're at in life and even your own cultural background, you'll tend to focus on one of these three enemies, even though they are bound up together like the three-headed dragon. But often, depending upon where we're at in our culture, background, where we're at in life, we'll focus on one of those. So for example, if you have a a very guilty conscience, you've done a lot of wrong in life, you have a desperate need for someone to deal with your past mistakes, your sin. Let's say you are late in your 90s and you're on your deathbed. The number one thing, the number one enemy for you that you were looking at is death in that instance. And let's say this, is, this isn't dominant in our culture because our culture is so saturated in materialism, but let's say you live in a village and you become a Christian forsaking the local gods of your people. And the shaman of this village gives you notice that he's going to unleash the evil spirits that you are now denying upon you and your family. You better hope in that instance that there is a power in this world that can protect you from these evil supernatural forces. And so that's a kind of foreign idea to our cultural being, being saturated materialism. Nevertheless, depending upon where you're at in life, you may be focusing on one of these three great existential threats. But keep in mind, it's a three-headed dragon. It's an evil trident. Now, the way Scripture works throughout the entire Old Testament is that this, this three-headed dragon creates a pattern that man always falls into. You look at the life of Adam, then his son Cain. You look at Abraham, the patriarchs, and you go all the way down to the kings of Israel. Satan tempts, man sins, man dies, Satan wins. And so you see that in Cain. You see that in Abraham and the patriarchs. and Even in like people that are looked at in, in, in good eyes in the scriptures in the Old Testament, like a King David, he's still 
falls into temptation, sins, and the way you know, this is, the, this is the key, the way you know someone has fallen to temptation and sinned and is guilty is that they're dead. If you're in the ground dead, you are receiving the punishment that came along because of the pattern of replication. So where's David? Where's, where's Abraham? When you're, leading, when you're looking at the Old Testament scriptures, they're dead, they're in the, in the ground, and so that pattern replays again and again. But then you get to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And so let's take all of that information from Genesis and bring it in with us to the beginning of our story. If you were here roughly 70 weeks ago, you remember this. (laughs) Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Angel appears. Do not be afraid. A, a child is going to be born, and Adam is going to be born. But this Adam is a new Adam, and he will be fundamentally different than all the other humans who came before him. He is coming to save his people from their sins. Now go back to our logic. If he is going to save people from their sins, then he, by necessity, must have something to do with death and Satan, because it's all bound up. Death, sin, Satan. So right at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, it's cluing you in as a reader. This child is different. He is supposed to be a new Adam who will finally wage war, deal with that enmity problem, and strike at the skull of the serpent of old. Now, then what do we see in the life of Jesus? What happens as this child grows into a man? And this kind of summary also serves as a summary of the Gospel of Matthew leading up until this point. He is indeed different than everyone else on so many different layers. Just think about how he treated people. You know, the the person who was on the outside was brought in. Those who would not receive care and compassion received compassion and care. And then you have him reaching out to people that even society would, would reject, even people like tax collectors were told, even though you've lived this life of sin, you can turn from your ways, you can repent. And do you know what? There is a God in heaven who will forgive you. There's a God in heaven who will forgive you. He he cleansed the leopards. Those who were unclean were made clean. Those who were possessed by demons were restored and put in their right mind. He would reach out to to people who were in immoral lifestyles. So say the prostitutes heard a message, maybe for the first time, that despite what's happened to them, despite what they've done, they have worth. That there's a God who knows the, the hairs on their head, who knows their name and loves them. And at one point in the gospel accounts, um, Jesus kind of upset some of the religious leaders because he says, the tax collectors and prostitutes will see the kingdom of heaven before you do. So Jesus is drawing in everybody, and he's giving them care and comfort and compassion. He lives differently. And then also, if you remember, this Jesus does battle with the serpent at the beginning of the story, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus goes into the wilderness to fast, and in that 40-day period, there's trial and temptation. Satan, the mysterious serpent of old, shows up and says, if you are truly the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, then do this. If you're the Son of God, then do that. If you're the Son of God, change this rock to bread. You're hungry, you're fasting, just make the pain stop, make it go away. What's fascinating is that Jesus doesn't fall for the temptations. 
Adam was tempted once and failed in a garden paradise. Jesus is tempted three times and succeeds and is victorious in the desert wilderness. And so it says this mysterious serpent figure flees, but he waits for an opportune time. Jesus also taught in a way that was different than anyone else. And the people say this. They're like, he teaches with an authority, not like all the other teachers. And what's the content of his teaching? Well, you look to things like the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus took kind of the ethics and morals of the day and just like exponentially he multiplied them. He's like, no, this is God's true standard. So he would say things like, you've heard it said not to commit adultery. I tell you, don't even have lust in your heart. You've heard it said, do not murder. I tell you that the anger and hatred you have for your brother, that will lead to murder. So to be kind and generous, pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Be generous. Don't store up treasures for yourself. Store up treasures in the kingdom of heaven. And so you look at the teachings of Jesus and you realize they are fundamentally different than anything else. And you layer all of these things, his teaching, his life, the way he treated people, the way he fought Satan in the wilderness, you begin to think something. You kind of put the puzzle pieces together. This man, this Galilean from Nazareth, he's breaking the pattern. The pattern is, 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 is being undone. Satan tempts, man sins, man dies, Satan wins. He's, like, he's breaking it. He's breaking the pattern. And you see this in the life of Jesus. And then this, this climaxes when Jesus reaches into, he enters into the holy city, Jerusalem. Because if something like epic is going to happen, it can't just happen anywhere. It's going to happen in the capital, in the holy city, in Jerusalem, where the temple's at. Now, what happens, if you recall, when Jesus enters into the holy city of Jerusalem? He comes entering in like a king. And how do the people receive him? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the true son of David. People are confessing Christ to be the king, the Messiah, the true son of David. And he's entering into Jerusalem, the holy city. And when is he entering into Jerusalem? During Passover time, during freedom time. The whole religious calendar is structured in such a way that as Jesus enters into the city, there's all kinds of extra meaning and idea just kind of floating in the air. At this point, you are going, this man is the one who has come to defeat the serpent. They say he is born of the Virgin Mary. We see that he is innocent and is living a perfect life. He heals like no others. His miracles are like no other. He teaches like no other. And now he's marched into Jerusalem and hailed as king. He's the one. This is it. However, in the blink of an eye, the tides of popular opinion turn against this man. And many people who would once want to crown him as king would yell out for him to be crucified. And in the blink of an eye, everything changes. He is betrayed. He is abandoned by his followers. He is mistreated. There is an illegal trial. He is abused. And now he is standing before the highest Roman power in the land, Pontius Pilate, and Pilate is giving the people of Jerusalem a choice. I'm going to release somebody. I can release to you Jesus or this other guy named Barabbas. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said Barabbas. Pilate said to them, 
Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. This is, this is like haunting words. They didn't just say kill him. I mean, it's one thing to say kill somebody, right? That'd be bad enough. But they cry out for crucifixion. This is a horror beyond horror. It is incommunicable, unimaginable suffering that's placed on a human being. It is ultimate death. And the people there are crying out, crucify this man. Pilate responds, what evil has he done? He's done no wrong. This is the man without sin. And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. See, the people that day had a choice, and by extension, all of humanity finds ourselves represented in that group. Do you want the way of Jesus, the way of grace and forgiveness and peace, or do you want the way of Barabbas, who is a murderer? He walks in the way of murder, hatred, violence. He walks in the way of Cain. He walks in the way of the serpent. Whose side do you choose? The serpent or the offspring of the woman? And humanity cries out, give us Barabbas, give us Cain, give us the serpent. And what do you want to happen to the other guy? Kill him. Don't just kill him, crucify him. Crucify him. And so Jesus is handed over to be executed in the most horrific of possible ways. And we talked about this already, so we're not going to review much. But again, this is ultimate death. This isn't just a simple death. This is human beings designing a way to cause the most suffering upon another human being. This is like peak serpent behavior. This is peak cane behavior. We don't just want to kill them. We want to make them suffer. And so our English word excruciating comes from the Latin excruce, meaning out of the cross. In polite Roman society, you wouldn't use the word cross to crucifixion because if anyone in the crowd had seen or observed that, it would invoke those images and just whatever situation you're in would be completely ruined. So Jesus suffers in agony, hanging, nailed immovable between heaven and earth. On top of that, he's abandoned. Where are the disciples? They're gone, right? The people who pledged allegiance to him. Even if we have to die, we will follow you. I will be with you till the very end. I will never leave you. We give you our promises and our pledge. We will give you our allegiance, but now they are nowhere to be found. So the man from Galilee suffers on the cross, abandoned by his disciples. And then you you start to see something different. It it, it appears at this point the serpent is once again going to win. Remember the logic. If you go into the ground, the cursed Adamah, you die. That's the punishment of sin. So what do the people say there that day? Those who passed by while Jesus was on the cross, they derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him. If he desires him, 
For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And so what you see is a united humanity of Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, all condemning Jesus, all mocking him, all taunting him. In this, in this passage, you, you have three layers. You have those who pass by, the religious elite, and even the criminals, and they all taunt Jesus. And if you remember, the way they taunt Jesus is by adopting the words of Satan himself from Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, remember the wilderness scene. Jesus tempted three times, and Satan says, if you are the son of God, turn, turn the rock to bread. End your suffering. Do you follow this? If you're the son of God, end your suffering. And now what are in the people's mouths? It's the words of Satan. Remember, Satan left for an opportune time. If you are the son of God, end your suffering. If you're the son of God, end your pain. Prove it. Prove it. We'll believe. If you want us to believe, come down from that cross. We'll believe. Nevertheless, the cross is speaking in this sense in an authoritative manner because you're nailed immovable. Once someone goes on the cross, there's no turning back. The Romans made sure of this. Oftentimes, on the back end of the cross, they would hammer the nails flush with the back of the wooden cross to communicate. Once that cross is raised, the only thing that waits for you is more agony. Death is better than what's happening to you. And so as the people observe all of this, when they're seeing the death of Jesus, they're mocking and taunting him, but in one sense, they're almost just playing out the logic. If he dies on this cross, then that by definition means he's not the son of God. Like someone who dies on a Roman cross by definition is not the son of God. Someone who dies on a Roman cross by definition is not the Messiah. So in one sense, they're mocking and it's horrible evil upon evil. But in another sense, like within the narrative structure that they've been like raised in, if 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 a so-called Messiah dies on a cross, they're not the Messiah. They're dead in the tomb, just like everyone else. And the pattern repeats itself. Satan tempts, man sins, man dies, Satan wins. And so maybe if you were reading this story for the first time, you would look at Jesus' suffering at this point and say, God has forsaken him. Clearly God has abandoned him. Because the Messiah would not be allowed to suffer like this. Or maybe Jesus sinned. Maybe in his sufferings, he cursed man. He cursed the enemies. He cursed God. We don't know, but he's dying upon a cross, this horrific death. And when he dies and gives up his last breath, hope is lost. Hope is lost. Like, let's, let's go back to all those people who Jesus showed compassion to, who showed care for, who he gave comfort to. Remember like the demon possessed, the unclean, the leper, the tax collector, the prostitute. You know, maybe for the first time in the teachings of Jesus, they begin to hope again. It's very difficult to hope in life, right? Like, because this life will hit you again and again and again and again. And people will let you down again and again and again. And then when you finally build up the courage to trust another human being and put your hope in them, they hurt you and betray you in a way that's so insurmountable to overcome, you just give up on hope. It's very difficult to hope in this world. And so maybe for the first time, the tax collector said, 
I can leave my sinful ways behind. This man says that God can still love me. And a little, little spark of hope happens in his life. Or the people who were rejected by society, who felt no worth and value. When Jesus says, don't you know that like the, your father knows when a sparrow falls, how much more does he love you? And maybe they started for the first time to believe, like, I, I can be loved by God. You hope. You take the courageous step to hope. But that dies when that man dies. He was wrong. He wasn't who he said he was. So do, do the people just go back? Does the tax collector go back to immoral ways of collecting money? Do, do the people who worked fishing the lakes, do they just go back to being fishermen? Or what happens, let's take it to a step further, what happened to the prostitutes who maybe for the first time believed, despite their life and what they've done, what's been done to them, that there was a God in heaven who could love them and save them and forgive them? What do they go back to? When the man from Galilee dies on that cross, what do they return to? Where do we go? We have no one else, Lord. We have no one else but you, Lord. Where do we go? Where do you go when he dies on the cross? Hope is lost, and the pattern repeats itself. And so, what do you see in the life and death of Jesus? You see a glimmer of hope that this is finally the guy. Someone to believe in, someone to put your faith in, someone to trust in, someone that gives you hope. But that hope was nailed to a cross and it died. After Jesus gives up his last breath, it says this in Matthew 27. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So there's this rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, and he goes and tries to get the body of Jesus. He's successful. He gets the body and is going to put it in his own new tomb. Now, you have to understand that what this guy does is incredibly risky. Incredibly risky. Jesus was condemned, executed, and crucified for treason. And so if you're his followers, you don't want to be identified as a follower of a guy who just got crucified for treason. Nevertheless, this, this man, Joseph, wants to honor his teacher. And the reason why he's getting a tomb is because he, go, he's, he knows there's no coming back from this. Hope is, hope is gone. He's putting him in the tomb for his body to rot. He knows it's impossible for something good to come out of that. Nevertheless, this guy honored his teacher to such a degree that even though things didn't turn out right, he is being faithful to honor the dead body of his teacher. Because in, in, in this day's crucifixion, victims were either left to hang on a cross till scavengers come and would eat the flesh, or because of Jewish sensibilities, oftentimes they were taken down from the cross and thrown into a ditch. So this guy at least has the faithfulness to try and honor Jesus of Nazareth in his death. 
Now you got to pause right here because there's some weird stuff going on. Where are the disciples? They're gone. The disciples are gone. They're not there. Many of his followers aren't there. They're gone. Like if anyone should be there, it's the 12 disciples. Nevertheless, there is this one follower of Jesus. And Matthew gives us like one critical piece of information about this man. He's a rich man. And he's very rich if he has a new tomb in Jerusalem cut out. He's a very wealthy man, a very wealthy man. Which is an interesting detail like, you know, there came a rich man from Arimathea. Like, got to include this information. Now, let's go back uh, many chapters into the Gospel of Matthew because Jesus has a discussion with his disciples who at this point are nowhere to be found about rich people. Jesus gives us an analogy, a parable, a metaphor. He says, you want to know how hard it is for rich people to get into heaven? It's like a camel going through the eye of the needle because there's this story of a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and Jesus says, sell everything you have and follow me because your riches are like your idol, so follow me. And the rich man leaves, leaves sad because he couldn't do it. And Jesus says, yeah, this is how it is. It's very difficult. It's as difficult as a camel going through the eye of the needle. And then the disciples, do you remember what they say? They're like, man, it's impossible for anyone to be saved then. It's impossible for anyone to be saved. And what does Jesus say about the rich? He says, uh, yeah, it's impossible with men. But with God, all things are possible. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And now, as Jesus' body goes into the tomb, everyone has left, yet you see a rich man with what little faith he has risking his neck to honor his Lord. All things are possible with God. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Seek Jesus who was crucified. Okay. This is, this is another strange thing. Because the women there, they're not expecting to see what they see. And there's this angel. And what does he tell them? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I know who you seek, Jesus, who was crucified. And I love verse 4. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. That's interesting. The guards are like dead men. The guards are like dead people. And you don't fear, for I know you seek Jesus who's been crucified. Now, do you remember where our story began in Matthew? It, it began with like the Christmas message, right? The angel comes to Joseph, and do you remember what he said? Do not fear. Do not fear. Name the boy Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And now at the ending of our story, what do you see? The angel, 
Do not fear. I know you seek the one who was crucified. It's almost as if Matthew, by bookending his story with these angels and do not fear, as if he's trying to tell us there's something, there's something having to do with him being crucified and the saving of his people from their sins. It's as if the saving of his people from their sins is intricately bound up with this man who had to be crucified. And he goes on, he says, he's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now think about it for these, for these women. I mean, you've just seen probably the most explicit, like, form of evil. The cross is the peak of human suffering. It's the full weight of human evil coming down upon the one whom you love, whom you trusted in. It was so dark, the sky turned dark. And now all of a sudden, in a matter of days, there was like this supernatural being said, he's not here, he's risen. Go and tell his disciples. Can you imagine the excitement at this point? And so they go off, but as they go off, listen to what it says. So they departed quickly, because it's got to be quickly. They're not going to take their time. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And then the greatest pause in human history. And behold, Jesus met them and said, hello. He says, greetings. The Greek word for greetings here is, is chairo. It means hello. Like in the translations, it says greetings, but it's, it's the way to say hello. Hi. Hello. Cairo is in itself just hello or greeting, but oftentimes in many languages, like a greeting or a hello also means something. So in this case, Cairo means to rejoice. So in one sense, this is plainly just hello. And in another sense, this is the greatest reason to rejoice in all of human history. So picture, picture our Lord, picture your Lord, picture Jesus. He knows that these women have seen the crucifixion, the death, the darkness, the sky turning dark, and they're excited because maybe hope is starting to grow in their hearts once again. And it's almost like there's a tap on their shoulder. Hello. Like picture, picture your Lord in this moment. It's like a, a dad who's been gone away on business for several months and the kids don't think he's going to be there for Christmas, but he walks in Christmas morning and surprises them. It's like that times a million. But do you, see, do you feel that? It's like you walk in and beyond whatever expectations you had, greetings, hello, rejoice. And they came and they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. They worship at his feet because this one is different. This is not like the other men, the other Adams, the other humans. He is son of God, son of man, son of heaven, son of earth. He bridges the gap. He hangs between heaven and earth on the cross to bridge that gap. And they worship at his feet, the feet that the serpent struck and pierced, but the very feet that also struck at the head and skull of the serpent. Because remember where Jesus was crucified, Golgotha, the place of the skull. You're it. We have reason to rejoice. And then this is so good. This is so good, but it's so easy to miss. This is some of the best news you can ever hear and some of the greatest assurance you have as a follower of Jesus. Jesus tells the woman, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. 
Now, this is really easy to miss, but the point is this. Who are the disciples? They are the ones who pledged and promised and ran. They forsook, they abandoned, they left. They were not there in the final hours. They went back to doing whatever they did. They were not there. They said, I will, I will die. Even if I have to die, I will be by your side. They pledged faithfulness and were adulterous. And Jesus says, go tell my brothers I'm alive. Go tell my brothers I'm alive. Now remember the inner logic. If Jesus is alive, that means sin had no power over him because he lived the perfect life. And if he lived the perfect life and sin had no power over him, that means Satan did not win. He did not repeat the pattern. The pattern was broken. In the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, you are seeing the whole thing crumble down. He lives, therefore death does not have authority. Therefore sin does not have authority. Therefore Satan does not have authority. And this is why some of the first followers of Jesus could say this. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you follow this? It's his victory, but he shares in that victory. Now, this is saying that the one who was born of a virgin, the man from Galilee, the man from Nazareth, he indeed lived the perfect life and died the worst possible death, but death could not contain him because he did not sin. And because he did not sin, he is the first Adam to break the hold of the great adversary, the serpent of old. Now, you got to understand this. You have to understand, like, the super next level logic of this. Because we've been looking at the inner logic of it, and I'll take it a deep layer. Let's, like, let's repeat. Because he's alive, that means sin had no power over him. And if sin had no power over him, that means Satan had no power over him. And if Satan's sin and death have no power over him, that means this man must be a power above all powers. He must be a king above all kings. He must be a lord above all lords. He must be higher than whatever we can conceptually conceive of. He is king of kings, lord of lords, a power beyond all power. And when you recognize that, the first and inevitable question that should come next, if, if he is that high and he is that worthy, what does a king of kings and lord of lords have anything to do with someone like me? Who am I? Who am I that I get to go to him? Who am, like, who am I? Who are you? And I'm not saying that in some like super insecure, belittling way, like I just have low self-esteem, who am I? To? No, I'm talking like when you properly recognize that this is a king of kings, lord of lords, a power above all powers, and he suffered on a cross and rose victorious to defeat the three-headed dragon, to break the evil trident. When you recognize all of that, you say, who am I? Who are you? You are the one in whom the great I am says, that person is justified. They are forgiven. They will not be left to death. The enemy of old will not have power over them. The great I am speaks these truths over you because he was victorious. He shares in his victory. Who were the disciples to be welcomed back? Who were they? Who are we? Who am I? 
But what does Jesus do? Hello? Go tell my brothers I'm alive. Go tell them this good news. Death is defeated. I have resurrected. I have conquered Satan, sin, and death. Go tell my brothers. Do you feel the word brothers? It's family language. Brothers and sisters, the highest king of heaven uses family language towards you. Do you understand this? The king in the highest heaven uses family terms. Brothers, sisters, sons, daughters. This is why we say the gospel, and the whole point of the this book of Matthew, this is like the point, the gospel is the good news. It's an announcement, the good news of the defeat of Satan, sin, and death through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Just as there was an, like an evil trident or the three-headed dragon, it's in and through this trifold work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection that the great enemy of old is defeated. And you have to understand that these three great enemies, Satan, sin, and death, were your biggest problem. They were the great existential threats that always hovered over you. And when you understand that they have been defeated, you will walk in this world in a fundamentally different manner. Because your three greatest problems have been taken care of. Like, you know, if someone, if, let's say you were in debt by $5 million dollars, and you thought that was actually your greatest problem in life, and someone just came and paid it, how happy would you be? How different would you live that day? See, what we get confused of is sometimes we think whatever current problems we have, those are the three great enemies of humanity. Now hear me, I am not belittling earthly problems, the problems we because they are rough. Remember, it's very hard to hope in this life because life just keeps hitting and hitting and hitting. But the Christian expects that because this world is broken and fallen and the ground cursed. We walk among thorns and thistles. So I'm not belittling any of the problems that you have in your life. I know they can seem insurmountable, but you have to put them in proper context. Your three greatest enemies and problems have been defeated. Satan, sin, and death. Your three greatest problems. So, so it's like sin, Remember, different, different parts of the enemy speak to different types of people depending upon your culture and where you're at. But sin has been defeated. So for those of you, again, with like the guilty conscience, you have shame, you, you, you wrestle with what's, what's happened in your life, your guilt and shame will not have the final word on the last day. You, in Christ, will not hear guilty you will hear, welcome to the kingdom, my son, my daughter. Your sin, shame, faults, failures, they don't get the last word, Christ does. And to the adversary, the ancient serpent of old, the accuser, he will hear the verdict spoken over you, not guilty, because his accusations are made null and void. They bear no authority over God's children. And death, the great enemy, in all its hideous strength and monstrous faces that it appears. It comes for every last one of us. And whether you die by cancer, a car wreck, old age, sickness, or disease, that hideous monster will not have the final word. You will not stay dead. 
the same manner in which God the Father rose God the Son from the grave, so he will bring you up. And when you know that death is not the final word and death does not have the final say that Christ does, you will walk differently in this world. You will look at your problems differently. However big they are, you know that you are always walking in victory. Even when you fail, even when sin and shame floods you and you you feel like you can't even swim in it, your greatest enemies have been defeated by Christ and he shares in his victory. For those in Christ, you were always walking in victory and you were always and forever a good news people. No matter how dark this world gets, no matter how dark your life gets, you are forever and always a good news people. Because Christ lived, he died, he broke the pattern, he didn't stay dead, he came back. He broke the pattern and invites us all into his Father's kingdom. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our story began in Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then our story in Matthew begins with this. Joseph, son of David, it's Christmas. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, the true offspring of the woman. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And if he saves his people from their sins, he saves them from death and sin, and the three-headed dragon is defeated. The Gospel of Matthew begins, do not fear. His name is Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. The Gospel of Matthew ends with an angel saying, do not fear. I know you seek the one who is crucified, because it's in and through the mechanism of suffering and death that Christ would go through it and come out triumphant on the other side. And it's very good news that he is so gracious and so merciful that he says, go tell my brothers. Because who are we in this story? We're the ones who ran away. And God says, go tell my brothers. And at some point in your life, someone told you the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're here today because he changed you. And what happened 2,000 years ago is still happening. It's this good news of new life and regeneration. So no matter what is going on, even if the sky turns black in darkness, God is always working, he is always moving, he is always good, and for those who are found in Christ, he works all things for the good for those who trust in him. You are a forever and always good news people. Share it with the world. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body. It's given to you. This has been a constant theme in the Gospel of Matthew for us. No one took his life. He laid it down. He trusted in his father till his last breath. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He gives up his last breath. No one took it from him. He laid it down and he went into the tomb. And he trusted and was faithful to the end. He broke the powers and grip of Satan, sin, 
and death. And so we remember his sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus took the cup, the blood of the new covenant. It's the shedding of innocent blood. It's the shedding of innocent blood. He lived the perfect life and died the worst death in order to go into death itself and come out on the other side. And so because he's been so faithful to us, we now pledge our allegiance to him. We don't want to be frail and fickle with our words. We don't want to pledge and promise like the disciples did and then run. So Lord, we pledge to you our allegiance, but we ask that your spirit would empower us to be faithful to you until the very end. And so Father, we close now with worship and we want to honor the work of your son. He is at your right hand seated in the highest of heavens. He is king of kings, lord of lords. There is nothing above him, but he saw fit to come so low down to earth and then down to a cross, down to a tomb in order that he might lift us up from the graves we were destined to. He is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. So may this be an honoring time to you, Father, and your Son, and your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.